الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله رب الأولين والآخرين يا رب لك الحمد كما ينبغي لجلال وجهك ولعظيم سلطانك وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له يهدي من يشاء ويضل من يشاء بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن سيدنا وحبيبنا ووليينا وإمامنا محمدا صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا يضل أبدا ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا يهدى أبدا ومن يعتصم بالله فقد هدي إلى صراط مستقيم أما بعد Dear committed Muslims, brothers and sisters There are a few ayat that will be recited or quoted rather From our guiding book To demonstrate to us that The followers of Allah's Prophet Throughout their history have demonstrated their character and their principle regardless of the conditions and the circumstances. The first ayah is ayah number 41 from Surah Ar-Rum. ظَهَرَ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِي النَّاسِ لِيُذِيقَهُمْ بَعْضَ الَّذِي عَمِلُوا لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْجِعُونَ This ayah is saying that al-fasad has become manifest on land and sea due to what people have committed have acquired, have gained. ظهر الفساد في البر والبحر بما كسبت أيدي الناس ليذيقهم بعض الذي عملوا so that Allah ليذيقهم ليذيقهم الله بعض الذي عملوا some to give them a taste of some of what they have done. لَعَلَّهُمْ In the hope that their recourse will be to Allah. Before we go on to the second ayah, a short comment on this ayah. Allah Jalla wa'ala is saying, ظَهَرَ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِي النَّاسِ Corruption and 
what is improperly positioned has become manifest on land and sea. First of all, the mental observation is many times in the Quran, al-fasad is integral to al-ard. أَتَجْعَلُ فِيهَا مَنْ يُفْسِدُ فِيهَا وَيُفْسِدُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ There's a correlation between fasad and ard, between corruption and the planet or the world. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is attributing this fasad And these are the following words in the ayah. Bima kasabat nas. That fasad is due to what people are doing with their own hands. So when something is wrong with planet Earth, when something is wrong with this world, it's it's because of what we the peoples who occupy, who live in this habitat because of what we are doing. Now, isn't it a point to ponder when we realize that those who are not Muslims, they could be whatever they can be, but they don't read these ayat, they are not privy to this Qur'an, And they've realized in themselves that something is wrong with this world. It's an omen to say that we who were given this enlightenment in our central book cannot understand its meanings as much as those who are not privy to this book, they don't read the Qur'an, yet they have discovered some of the meanings that are in the Qur'an. And they trace this facade to its source, which are the governments, the strategists, the decision makers, the planners, the ideologues, among others, all of this, something's wrong with this world, means something is wrong with this world, something is wrong with this planet. But in our history, and so because, before I get to that, and so because we are supposed to have empty heads, and our heads are supposed to remain empty because we have masajid that are empty, they are full of bodies. MashaAllah, you go to these masajid, they're full. They're overflowing with bodies. But they are scarce in thoughts. 
thoughts that are generated by understanding Allah Azza wa Jal and by understanding His Prophet. May Allah's peace and blessings be upon him and his. There's another ayah in the Quran, ayah number 23 in Surah Al-Ahzab. The words are, مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ رِجَالٌ صَدَقُوا مَا عَاهَدُوا اللَّهَ عَلَيْهِ Of the committed Muslims, there are those who were true to their pledge with Allah. Some people in today's choice of words refer to them as principalists in certain contexts. مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ رِجَالٌ صَدَقُوا مَا عَاهَدُوا اللَّهَ عَلَيْهِ So they are true to their word with Allah. There's nothing that's going to interfere with this devout relationship with Allah Jalla Sha'nu. Nothing. Then there's Ayah 110 in Surah Yusuf. It says, Hatta Ida stay as a Rusulu Wavanu Ennahum Kad Kudibu Jaahum Nasruna Fanujia Menasha Wala Yuradu Batsuna Anil Kaumil Mujirimi. In this lifelong fealty with Allah Tabaraka wa ta'ala the nature of the challenges in life will make a person at times feel that I feel like giving up and we are just average human beings we don't want to say that we're above average or below average. We're just average human beings. And then we say, how long is this going to take? The prophets of Allah spent their lifetime. The lifetime is defined by Allah. We, I don't know how long I'm going to live. You don't know how long you're going to live. No one knows how long they're going to live. But there's a stretch of time in which we are committed to Allah. We're not committed to some mundane issue or some quick profit or something like something materialistic like that. We're committed to Allah. And Allah is telling us, I want you to know. You who have committed yourselves to me, I want all of you to know that my selected prophets in their lifetime, they felt as the struggle continued, they felt despair. They were about to lose hope. So this is natural and normal and is to be expected. Within this context, 
the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدِهِ لَتَأْمُرُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَلَتَنْهَوُنَّ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ أو لَيُوشِكَنَّ أَنْ يَبْعَثَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ عِقَابًا مِنْهُ ثُمَّ تَدْعُونَهُ فَلَا يُسْتَجَابُ لَكُمْ The language here is in emphatic words and terms. And It's like saying, you are certainly expected to disestablish the munkar and to authorize the ma'roof. That's what Allah expects from us. Here we have these two words, the ma'roof and the munkar. Has anyone ever given it a thought in a world that has gone awry? Has anyone given it a thought, where is this munkar and where is this ma'roof? We have, may Allah educate them, we have some of these preachers who are given podiums and given minbars who say that the ma'roof is something like telling the truth something like and this is ma'roof I mean no one's arguing this something like being trustworthy something like being good to your neighbor something like being a good father and mother all of those are ma'roof everyone knows this and what is munkar? Well, if you disobey your parents, that is a munkar. If you lie, that is a munkar. All of this is true. No one is saying that's not true. But in the context of the Qur'an, and we just quoted three ayat from the Qur'an, if we wanted to look at al-ma'roof and the munkar, when a world is going off course, we are poisoning this world. And I'm not talking about the psychological world or the mental world. I'm speaking about the physical world. The physical world is being poisoned. Bima kasabat nas. And who do we have? Who do we have taking a stand and referencing those who are responsible for this? The, this hadith of the Prophet says, you are expected to do that. And if you don't do that, then Allah is on the verge of sending to you a punishment, inflicting something horrible on you, a penalty. And when this happens, it seems like this is the case in some quarters, when this happens, then you make dua to Allah. MashaAllah, there are people that are very skilled at saying dua. And they have a long breath. They continue for an hour or two with ad'iyah, du'as. Allah says, ثُمَّ تَدْعُونَهُ فَلَا يُسْتَجَابُ لَكُمْ Then you beseech Allah, you plead with Allah, 
and there's no response no response coming to you you see today's world how much dua there is in this world why isn't there a response because there's no one really involved in what is called al-ma'roof and its promotion and the munkar and its demotion no one practically alhamdulillah the followers of the prophet there are individuals who still have this character among them there's another hadith of the prophet that says when people see a zalim, when people recognize there's a zalim, an oppressor, a tyrant, a despot, a king, a president, a chief executive, a commander-in-chief, whatever their description is, they are involved in this dhulm, this injustice and oppression, and we see it. We see it as Muslims, and there are other people in this world who see it who are not Muslims. Why are those who are not Muslims trying to do something about it? And we as Muslims who have the guidance here in Allah's book, run away from our responsibilities. Why is that? So when people, when they see a zalim and they don't take charge of him, this is an interesting statement because Allah has given the people to take charge of a zalim. We can review our history and say to ourselves, when was it in our history that we took charge of a zalim? Even this statement from Allah's Prophet it's hard to find its practical meaning in our historical events. So if you don't do that, if you don't take charge of a zalim, then Allah is going to inundate you with his penalties. Because of the weather, we're going to skip another hadith, but there are plenty of hadiths for those who are willing to read and understand. Now, I'm going to test your memory. And when I, I'm going to mention a person way back in the first generation of Muslims. And you would be one of the exceptional few if you knew who this person is. His name is Abdullah ibn Hudhafa al-Sahmi. Has anyone heard of him? We have so much Sunni Shi'i pollution that some character, we don't know this person, I don't know personally his persuasion when it came to the initial differences among the Muslims. And it doesn't matter what his persuasion was because we're going to look at how he behaved when he had to deal with a dictator or an emperor or one of these who 
are responsible for spoiling the affairs of the world. This Sahmi was from Quraysh. He was one of the Muhajireen, initial Hijrah, from Mecca to Al-Habasha. The Prophet later on tasked him as an envoy to deliver the Prophet's correspondence to Kisra, the king in Persia. He, as Sahmi, this Abdullah as Sahmi, was on the front line during the time when Egypt was liberated. And he died in the 33rd year of the Hijrah during the rule of Uthman. When Omar was ruling, obviously there was a war front between the Muslims on one the Muslims on one side and the Byzantines to the north basically and the Persians basically to the east. So Abdullah as Sahmi was given a military duty. He was a commander of let's say a brigade of Muslims who encountered the Byzantines. And after they fought valiantly, he became a prisoner of war. And there were about 80 other Muslims who also became prisoners of war. And they obviously were put in prison. And this ruler who was in Al-Qustantiniyya, Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, was Heraklius. In Arabic it's Herakl. Heraklius had just lost the Levant. Bilad al-Sham, he lost control of it because of the advance of the Muslim forces. So he had experience and he had knowledge of the Muslims and it is said he was impressed by the bravery and the sacrifices of these Muslims so when he was told a Muslim commander now has fell at the war front and is a prisoner of war what are we going to do with him he said Starve him, he's the commander. Starve him, and when he's hungry, bring him pork to eat. They starved him until he was going to die. And they, they went back to Herak and said, Your prisoner is going to die. You want him to die? He said, No, no, let him eat whatever he wants to eat. Bring him anything he wants to eat. But when it comes to drinking, when he wants to drink something, only bring him wine, intoxicant, khamar. So they did that with him. 
until once again he was about to die. He, he refused to drink that substance. So they came back, the wardens came back to Heraclius and they told him, he's about to die. You want us to continue? He said, no. Give him whatever he wants to drink and give him whatever he wants to eat. I'm going to change tactics now. Now we are going to give him not only whatever he wants to eat and drink, we are also going to give him anything he wants to wear and we are going to bring him all types of women and see what he's going to do. So they began treating him like a king, bringing him anything he wants and imposing on him women. And he would only have, he didn't indulge, he probably was brought, in today's language, he probably was brought steak and French fries and the best drinks, gourmet food and all of this. In addition to these women all around him. And also they brought him the best clothes to wear. He would only eat whatever was necessary to eat. He did not indulge. He would only drink whatever was necessary to drink. He didn't put anything on him from the clothes. And he ignored the presence of women all around him. This is a form of psychological warfare. And this psychological warfare was enforced upon a Muslim commander who became prisoner of war. And he didn't succumb. So these people who are observing him, the wardens in prison, they went back with the information to their commander-in-chief, Heraclius, and they said, this is what's happening. He said to them, I have tried this person with everything that is harsh until he almost died, and I tried to spoil him with everything that a, pers a worldly person would desire. And he didn't respond. Bring him to me. Remember, we're speaking about a person here who understood the issues of the world in the context of the ayat that I just quoted for you and the hadiths that I just mentioned for you. So they brought him. Come with us. They took him to Heraclius. Heraclius said to him, remember this is a person who studied Islam. He knows what it's all about. Just like in today's world, you think you know more about Islam than those who are on the opposite side of the issue. They know more about it than you do. They're not Muslims, but in their minds, they have a lot of knowledge about what Islam is all about. So he said to him, I just ask you to do one thing and you are a free man to go back to your own country and to your own people. He said, what is it? He said, just kiss my forehead. He said, no. 
He said, then, what is it that you want? He said, if I kiss your forehead, I want the rest of the Muslims who are with me, prisoners of war who fell in the same battle, I want you to release all of them, around 80 of them. I want them all released. He said, I will grant you what you want. So As-Sahmi went up to him and kissed his forehead. And he and the rest of the Muslims were released and they returned to Mecca. And the news, I'm sorry brothers and sisters, I can't, I can't jump from the details of this incident to the details of today's world. You think about the Islamic characters we have and the pressure that they are under, whether they are starving to death, whether they are suffering from life and death policies by chief executives in their countries and thousands of miles away. But you can place this incident in the context of today. When Muslims are under pressure, are they going to succumb? It is permissible for a Muslim, if he is dying, to eat the haram and to drink the haram. It's permissible. If your life is at stake, it's permissible for you to do that. But he didn't do it. Why did he not do it? He didn't do it because when he arrived in Mecca, let me, when he arrived in Mecca, the news about what happened to him also arrived in Mecca. And Omar asked him, verify what happened. So he told him what happened. Omar himself went to this person's forehead and kissed it. Because this person was put through heaven and hell, both, for him to negotiate away some of his principle, he refused to do that. Why? He was asked in Mecca, why? You could have, you could have eaten something and drank. You could. He said, I remembered the Prophet's hadith. لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى يحب لأخيه ما يحب لنفسه. None of you is a mu'min until he prefers for his brother what he prefers for himself. That sense of solidarity that he had did not permit him to escape by himself and see 80 others for whom he was commander languish in the prisons of the Byzantines. I don't know this person's seerah, his, the details of his life. I don't know. But this one incident is enough. Besides what I mentioned to you, he went 
on a hijrah to Al-Habasha and he participated in the liberation of Egypt and he was with the Prophet in Al-Madinah and he went to the battles. All of these are known. So can we not have in our time Muslims who stand on principle and understand that what counts is their relationship with Allah. It's not the deviations and attractions and distractions that are all around us. And they come in the form of a sarra and they come in the fourth form of a darra. And we should pass this exam of a sarra and a darra live on principle and pass on to Allah on principle. I came across a sentence of one of these principal Muslims in those early generations who said, he may have been of a Sufi persuasion, he may have said, I will give my blood to satisfy the thirst of the earth and go to Allah with a hunger so he can satisfy a hunger for him so he can satisfy me that's a long distance between such examples and the petty type of Muslims today who have miniaturized the meanings of the ayat and the ahadith to fit into bathrooms and bedrooms instead of being in the expanse of this world and planet. Aqulu qawli hadha wa astaghfirullaha li wa lakum wad'uhu subhanah wa antum ala yaqeenim bil ijabah wa tubu ila Allah إن الله تواب رحيم الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear committed brothers and sisters We have to build a thinking mind so that when we read Allah's words and we tune in to his, his Prophet's teachings that we can grapple with the affairs of this world. These people, and I will try to bring you other examples of who we had and how they dealt with people in power. This Abdullah al-Sahmi was dealing with a person in power. And it wasn't any person. He was ahead of a superpower. Compare his character and his behavior, 
his struggle and his sacrifice with some of the Muslims we have all around us? What if they were put through these types of issues and they are being put through these types of tests? Some of them are being tortured. Do they become informers? Do they become spies? What happens to them? Some of them are given budgets. What do they do with these budgets? Do they build Islamic self-determination? Or they side with those who are undermining Islamic self-determination? It's going to have, it's going to take a mature Islamic practical understanding of our Quranic responsibilities to understand something, some of the following that just developed in the recent past, in the week or two that have elapsed. Right now, with a Quranic mind, what is it? What inhibits you as a committed Muslim from thinking about what they are telling us now, they're bouncing the ball. They're saying there's going to be direct flights between Israel and Saudi Arabia to take the Palestinians to the Hajj. What a clever way. What an Israeli way to normalize things. You hide behind the Hajj. That's what they are doing. And they get away with it because no one addresses these issues from the Masajid and the Manabr. Tel Aviv to Riyadh, Riyadh to Tel Aviv. This is what's in the making. And many of us are sleeping. The Saudi Arabian ambassador in Algeria in the past couple of days appeared in the media, mass media, and he says, Hamas is a terrorist organization. And this has become the defining point. However, whatever your Islamic background or definition of Islamic activism is, the Palestinian issue is the bedrock of it all. And what do you say, whatever Islamic background you are related to, what, what do you say about these capitulationist diplomats who come out. Now they have the nerve. They're coming out. They dare not say this. They always had comfortable relationship with the Zionist enemy. Always. But now they are going public with it. Why? Because they feel the Muslims are so ignorant. We control many of the masajid in the world to keep the Muslims ignorant that we can begin to say such things in public. The ex-foreign minister of Jordan, who today is at the Carnegie Institute, it's in our area, some high-ranking official in the Carnegie Institute. He was the foreign minister of Jordan when the Israelis first commissioned an embassy in Amman. He was their foreign minister. I don't like to say this. Maybe I shouldn't. 
But this foreign minister is not a Muslim. And what happened in Jordanian-Israeli relations happened when Jordan had a non-Muslim foreign minister. What did he say recently? He said that the Saudi war in Yemen, look, he's at a think tank, supposed to be sort of withdrawn from the heat of the battle. He said Saudi Arabia is spending every month $6 billion in its war in Yemen. It's been in this war, what, 28 months now? You do your math, around $180 billion to kill a poor people. And no one wants to mention this in the Masajid. What's wrong with you? You have blood on your hands. You're scared, you're afraid to look at the facts of life. The Israeli universities, in the curriculum of certain Israeli academic programs, they're beginning to teach the statements of Sayyid Hassan Nasrullah. You know who that is. And they are mesmerized by his presentation of the facts. Even the Israeli public is getting a sense that their own Zionist government is lying to them. So the only person who carries in his statement the truth is the commander of the Islamic resistance in Lebanon. So much so that they recognize he is the first commander in that geography of the world who is a hero, albeit a hero against them. Why can't we look at these people who are kings and rulers? Why can't we look at them with an Islamic mind and an Islamic heart? Why can't we do that? If we are told in the news, this is a news item. I'm not creating anything. It's in the news. When the G20 had their summit, their yearly summit in Hamburg, Germany, you all saw the demonstrations there. King Salman of Saudi Arabia was scheduled to attend. During the last days, he apologized for not being able to attend. But before that, the Saudi diplomats went to a hotel in Hamburg and they reserved the whole hotel, 160 rooms, and they paid the full mount in advance. What do you say about these types of rulers? How do you compare Salman? Or how do you compare his sons with the Sahaba? You speak about the, this was the character of Umar. This was the character of Abi Bakr. This was the character of the others who were around the Prophet. The ones that you are, you're not tired of repeating their names night and day. The character, the behavior, the comportment of these Sahaba condemn you, the rulers in Arabia, night and day. And now we have another Israeli official stating in public there should be a railroad 
between Israel and Saudi Arabia, a railroad that of course passes through Jordan and may pass through Egypt depending on how they agree to the details of this. Something wrong if some, someone mentions a fact like this in a khutbah, someone's scared of something, are you gagged? Were you given a gag order from some superior? Who is your superior? If not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In this past week, we are told in these news items for the first time, females in Saudi schools are permitted to have physical education classes for the first time. What uh, Muslim women don't have a body, they can't exercise. I don't know what type of tension this is creating within the monarchy there, between those who agree to this and those who disagree with that. The information minister in Saudi Arabia last week says that Qatar is responsible for 23,000 Twitter accounts that express criticism against the Saudis. We wish they were 23 million. That's not enough. Saudi Arabia now, this is a first step. There are other steps to follow. It is imposing a fee on the pilgrims inside of Saudi Arabia to an extra fee. Forget about the other fees. There's a new fee now that's being imposed. And they said earlier, when they were thinking about how to generate revenue, they said, we will not touch the Hajj and the Umrah. They've touched the Hajj and the Umrah. They've pierced and stabbed the Hajj and the Umrah. And we're not, we're, everyone's supposed to make believe none of this is happening. Oh, it's a sunny day, everything is bright, the world is fine, there's no facade, fil barri wal bahar, there's no munkar, everything is ma'roof. This is how they want us to think and to behave. And this is what happens. A few years ago, the barrel of oil was $120. Now the a barrel of oil is somewhere around $40 or $47. And when they need money, they'll even take it from the Muslims who are coming from around the world to the Hajj and Umrah to finance their relationship with the Zionists and to finance their wars in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, and elsewhere. And they want us to believe that those who speak truth to power are out of order when in fact... They are the ones who are out of order and dysfunctional. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna attiba'ah. Wa arina al-baatila baatilan warzuqna ajtinaabah. Wa la taj'alhu multabisan alayna. Waj'alna lil-muttaqina imama. Rabbana innana sami'na munadiyan yunadi lil-eeman. أن آمنوا بربكم فآمنا ربنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا 
وكفر عنا سيئاتنا وتوفنا مع الأبرار ربنا وآتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخزنا يوم القيامة إنك لا تخلف الميعاد ربنا صل على محمد وآل محمد ربنا صل على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم ربنا بارك على محمد وآل محمد ربنا بارك على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم في العالمين إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة إن الصلاة كانت على المؤمنين كتابا موقوتاً